right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's up? Happy Friday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson and I'm going to be joined by lots of guests throughout the day. We're out a little bit early at 530 for Royals coverage right here on KLWN. But we're going to be talking with Brandon McAnderson coming up. At about 3.40 here, a little KU football and finals talks with BMAC. Kendall McKee is going to talk MLB draft and what the Royals should do at 4 o'clock with us. We'll be joined by John Kirby at 4.45 to talk KU football amidst some of their latest transfers coming into the program. And then at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to have Joshua Briscoe of Almost Entirely Sports on 8.10. He's going to join us and talk a little Chiefs football. So, a lot to get to on today's show. Um, something we haven't really gone super in-depth about was the pro football focus ranking that had Lance Leipold as the number nine coach in the country. It just seems absolutely incredible that KU was able to lure a guy like that away and bring him into the program. Now, first of all, I'll say this. Take the list with a big grain of salt. Sometimes pro football focus releases some kind of obscure ranking, so to speak, such as this one. Um, it was the top 20 coaches in the country. Notably not on that list of the top 20 coaches was Ryan Day, the Ohio State head coach who is noted for being an offensive guru. So take it for a grain of salt. But even if you look at like other sites that have been releasing their top coaches in the country, you will find Lance Leipold in the top 25, the top 35 or whatnot. And this one where he's number nine on Pro Football Focus just kind of continues that trend. But this being the high mark. And it just makes you think, like, did KU kind of just luck their way into an absolutely amazing coaching hire? I mean, just to have this come up, like, who's to say that if Les Miles is here for another year at KU, or he's here for another two years at KU, Lance Leipold doesn't take another job after this next year when you're still going another couple years with Les Miles. The timing didn't work out perfectly because he didn't get to join the team till, you know, right when the spring game was occurring. But the timing might not be so bad in the end. You know, we might look back on this in a couple years, in five years, and say, man, good thing that happened. I, I just wonder if that big of an upgrade and I don't say this to say, you know, obviously with the stuff off the field with Les Miles, not great. But in terms of what he did for the program by bringing in all these high school recruits, by refilling your cupboard, so to speak, by bringing the scholarship numbers, and we're going to talk about that scholarship number with John Kirby coming up in about an hour and a half here, by kind of bringing it back towards that total, the max of about 85 he did improve where the program was sitting. But as far as maybe some of the X's and O's, some of the 
player development stuff, and maybe you didn't have enough time to tell with the player development stuff, it seems like you might be getting an upgrade in some of those areas with Lance Leipold. And I wonder how much of that, not just Leipold, the continuity of the staff, keeping everybody together, because that was probably the biggest flaw. The, the staff, there was there was no really continuity with the staff for KU football. It was guys coming in, guys leaving very often. Um, how much of that can lead to an immediate upgrade for this team? There's obviously not going to be a ton of pressure. This is kind of a honeymoon year for Lance Leipold. The over-under wins in Vegas is one win. So if you go out there and you go 1-11, again, it's a honeymoon year. That's not the most important thing here. It's are you building a program long-term? And certainly Lance Leipold appears to be the guy that's going to be able to do that for your program. But should we give more notion to the fact that in year one, maybe they could win three games. Maybe they could win four games. And kind of piggybacking off of all this, the Athletic released a uh, piece today. It was Max Olson uh, who wrote it, who covers college football for the Athletic. And it was looking at the best achievement. Um, it was looking at the Massey ratings, which is a basically analytics site that you know rates all the different college football teams, right? Similar to your Ken Palm or your Sagarin ratings or your Bart Torvik. So look at those. And it looked at team success from 2017 to 2020. And it compared that to recruiting rankings on 24-7 sports, but the recruiting rankings were from 2015 to 2018 because if you're coming in in 2015, you're likely a player around 2017. So you look at the rankings for those years because those players that were recruited from 2015 to 2018 impacted the teams from 2017 to 2020, right? So they compared the two lists, and if you averaged out your recruiting classes over those four years was 120th, and over those other four years that they were looking at in terms of competition, you averaged out in the Massey rankings to be 100th, you'd be a plus 20, right? And there's teams on there that you expect. You see Iowa State at the top, a plus 38. Iowa, who always seems like they're overachieving at a plus 36. You see some group of fives, you know, your air forces of the world, and so forth down the list. Well, for the Kansas one, you would think, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, is Kansas recruiting that well? Kansas has been recruiting well enough that they actually earned themselves on the top 10 underachiever list for Power 5 schools. And there's a couple way you can ways you can look at this. And Scott Chasen, I think, pointed this out on Twitter. He said, you can view this as, well, Les Miles just did such a good job recruiting that he raised the bar so much that they weren't able to live up to that just because they had such high recruiting rankings and maybe eventually they will live up to it because of all that he's brought in talent-wise. I'm just viewing it from a sense of you're bringing in more talent than you're achieving right now. Or at least you have over these past couple years. The cupboards, like I said, they're more full than you might think they are. And so bringing in a guy like Lance Leipold to a program who actually is bringing in okay talent but just hasn't seen the on-field success, maybe that is the difference to flip the the corner, to turn the page here for this program. 
So think about this. KU's on the top 10 list for biggest underachievers. They were number 10 on that based on recruiting rankings to what they've done. They were a minus 47. They're 117th in the rankings from the Massey ratings, whereas their recruiting rankings from 2015 to 2018 were 70th. On the other end of the spectrum, mentioned Iowa State at a plus 38. So that's a minus 47 for KU, a plus 38 for Iowa State. In theory, if, you know, development, finding diamonds in the rough, properly being coached, X's and O's, all that stuff, you hit that to the max, which is Iowa State right now. They are the top of that, showing you what you can do with that. Then all of a sudden, if you're doing what Iowa State did, KU goes from being 117th best team in the country to a top 35 team. That is how big of a difference that is. A minus 47 to a plus 38. You add a plus 38 to KU's recruiting class rankings, they're a top 35 team in the country. That is the value of a good coach and a good staff. And guess what? Among group of five overachievers since 2017, Buffalo ranks third. They own an average of 125. That's it on their recruiting rankings. 125, but they were 51 on average on the Massey rankings. They were a plus 74. It's easier to do at the smaller conferences. You don't have as, as many competitors in your own conference, right? Like, it's really hard to climb the Big 12 rankings, for instance, because part of Kansas becoming better is needing other programs, whether it's a Texas Tech or a Baylor or whoever, to kind of fall to the wayside, right? But Leipold, when he had basically bottom 10 recruiting classes every year, bottom five recruiting classes in that span, those same players went 30 and 16. That is how Kansas is going to win eventually. That is how Kansas is going to gain success. Maybe Les Miles would have gotten there where he would have gotten to a point where Okay, you're bringing in better recruits now. Now develop them. Now coach them up. Now do proper X's and O's, coaching decisions, and win with them and overachieve. Maybe he would have got there. All I know is that there is more recruiting value in this program than you think. And for a coach that has overachieved for so long at Buffalo, and I'm sure it's the same thing when you're at a D3 with Mount Union, that is how you're going to win at Kansas. So you're underachieving now. You brought in a coach who has mastered overachieving. Now, does it answer the question about immediate success? No. And that's what I'm most interested in. How much of all of that can come to a point in year one? There is a part of me that says, you know, not so fast. Like, you could be Nick Saban, and if you take over KU this year, surely you're probably landing some five stars in that situation coming into this year, but how much can you do in year one, right? Like even Nick Saban, I think his first year at Alabama, they were like six and six, you know, it takes time. This is what Phil Steele, who came on the show yesterday had to say when I asked him a question about, is there any look of reversion for this team? You know, some years you look at teams, you go, well, they lost five close games. They probably won't lose all of the close games this year. So that could be a couple extra wins. Or maybe they just had bad turnover luck. They were losing fumbles all the time. Maybe that'll revert to the mean, and they'll get a little bit better there. Is that something that could happen for KU? Because if so, then you couple that with the new coaching staff. You couple that with some new players coming into the program, and all of a sudden you get to a point where you say, well, maybe they can win a few more games than we think. But this is what Phil had to say. 
I think when you look at them last year, there wasn't a lot of close losses. They had won all year, and that was against Texas Tech in the season final. And also, turnovers weren't a major problem last year. They were only minus four in turnovers. And then one factor I always look at, which tells you a little bit about the gap you have to make up, and that's the yards per game in conference play. And Kansas was minus 231 yards per game in conference mm-hmm. play. So that's a, that's a big gap to overcome. Bringing in a, a new head coach after spring practice is over, a new coordinator's on both sides of the ball, that's not a dream scenario for any team. Uh, it's almost like uh, being last year, first-year head coach with no spring practice. Now, the good news is they did retain their interim head coach, Emmett Jones, got to talk to Coach Jones and Coach Leipold, uh this spring going over the team with them, which was good. to. You had one guy that had been there, and then, of course, you had Coach Leipold who was running the show, so it was a good conversation for both of them, but uh, I think Kansas has some ground to make up this year, uh, and maybe the gap was a little too big. And that's kind of a conversation we talk about all the time with this team. Just make that step. Be competitive, right? Lose a lot of your... Go 2-10, and but lose half those games. Lose seven of those games by one or two scores. Start to take that step before you start seeing the wins. And that is, a lot of times, the natural progression the teams undergo. So maybe that is the step that we should kind of judge it on this year. But there's another part of me, even though you had the shortened offseason for the new coaching staff, even though you didn't have a spring, even though you're going to have to evaluate all these guys just in August, even though you lost some of your star players, whether it's the transfer, like Marcus Harris and Karan Prunty, or going pro early like Apuka Williams. Part of me says that this coaching staff is going to affect so much. How much have we harped? over the course of previous coaching staffs on bad coaching decisions, on bad X's and O's, on lack of discipline, on dumb timeouts, on awful penalties, a delay a game on the first play of the drive. And so while there is that big gap to be made up for in terms of young players gaining experience, freshmen becoming juniors, talent prospering in the program, learning the X's and O's, I think the gap they could gain just in terms of the coaching aspects, especially when coupled with the fact that, again, they're not as bad off as you think recruiting-wise, I think there is enough there to maybe lead to an extra win or two this year that you more normally might not get in another year in some more competitive games than you might not think is going to happen with this team. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We'll talk a little bit more about this with Brandon McAnderson former KU Orange Bowl winning running back and now sideline analyst for the Jayhawk Radio Network coming up in about 20 minutes from right now. But coming up on the other side, I just noticed Remy Martin is going to be wearing number 11 for KU. I think he becomes the 10th player all time in KU men's basketball history to wear the number 11. Let's do a uh, little impromptu ranking of the 10 best players to wear the number 11 in KU men's basketball history. That on the other side, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, 
then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, so Remy Martin decided that he is going to be wearing number 10 for KU, or number 11, I'm sorry. Um, he is the 10th player, that was what was in my head here, to wear the number 11 for KU, I believe. I went back, looked at the media guide from last year. Nine other players have donned the number 11, at least according to the KU media guide. So if something's wrong, blame the media guide, not me. Remy Martin becomes the 10th. And guess what we like to do? We like to rank... T- 10 things, you know, it's a perfect round number. So why not rank the 10 best players ever to wear the number 11 for the KU men's basketball team? Number 10. All right, this is going to be a quick list. Number 10, Quintrell Thomas averaged one and a half points per game in 26 games for the 08-09 KU team immediately transferred to UNLV where he averaged about five points per game. Number nine. Number nine is Royce Woolridge. Also didn't do a ton with KU. Nine total points in 16 games at KU and 10-11 before he transferred to Eastern Washington, then transferred to Grand Canyon. You might be saying, well, Quintrell Thomas scored more points, played more games than Royce Woolridge. Well, Quintrell Thomas averaged five points per game at UNLV. Royce Woolridge averaged over eight points per game in his career between Eastern Washington and Grand Canyon, so I gave him a little bit of a boost. Number eight. Number eight, the great Bill Leinhard. This is the description on Bill Leinhardt. Bill was born in Slayton, Texas. He went to college at the University of Kansas where he was a member of the 1952 NCAA champion basketball team. He was then part of the American Olympic basketball team, which won the gold medal, played a total of five matches during the summer games in Helsinki. After the Olympics, joined the Air Force where he continued to play basketball. Upon leaving the Air Force, he retired from the sport and lived as a banker in Kansas. So shout out to Bill Leinhardt a member of the Air Force formerly, so salute to that, member of the NCAA champion team, and a member of a gold medal winning American Olympic basketball team. Doesn't really have any stats. I don't know how good he was. Played in five matches, though, during the course of the summer games, and he's a champion. What else do you want from him? He's number eight. Number seven. Seven is Mark Turgeon. That's right. The Maryland head coach played at Kansas from 1983 to 1987, wore the number 11, scored 461 career points, almost 500 uh, in 134 games. So it's about three and a half points, four points per game for Mark Turgeon. Not a ton, but contributed a little bit each and every four years. Went to a Final Four in 1986. Turgeon at number seven. Number six. Sixth on the list of this impromptu KU men's basketball players to wear number 11. Lincoln Miner. This was a tough debate between Lincoln Miner and Mark Turgeon. Lincoln Miner, 5.3 points per game in two years at KU. He also won the title in 1988. So on one hand, more points per game than Mark Turgeon. He also won a title, which Turgeon did not get to. Turgeon did have two more years. So that's a bit of a debate, but I'll stick with Lincoln Miner at number six. Into the top five we go. Number five. Number five. He hasn't even played a game with KU. It would be Remy Martin. Again, he's wearing number 11. If this was strictly a all-time what you've done in college basketball, Remy Martin's higher on this list. But 
This is KU men's basketball players to wear number 11. Remy Martin hasn't done anything in a KU basketball uniform. You can actually argue here that he should be number 10 on this list because he hasn't accomplished anything. But here's what he has accomplished with KU. He has given the team hope heading into this next year. Not that they didn't have hope. It's still KU basketball. But now people are talking about this being a legit national title team. He's going to be a preseason All-Big 12 pick. Who knows if he's a preseason All-American I think we feel pretty certain that Remy Martin's going to score more points in his first game at Kansas than Royce Woolridge, his nine points in the 16 games he had at KU. So we'll start with Remy Martin, number five, but he, unlike the other guys on this list, has the best chance to move up after this next year. Number four. Fourth best. This is the good stuff here. Josh Jackson. Now, if you were just going on the merits of best basketball player. Right, You take them for the best of what they were in just one specific moment, one specific season. He's probably higher on this list. But I had to account for the totality of a career. And when you're only at KU for one year, it's a little bit harder when you start talking legacy talk. That said, he was a third-team All-American. He was an All-Big 12 player, fantastic player on a fantastic team that was also great to watch. That's what gets him in the top four, but not any higher. Number three. And one of the people in front of him, Aaron Miles. See, you could argue that Josh Jackson, his freshman season, it would go toe-to-toe or better than maybe any individual season of Aaron Miles. But when you stack up all four years of Aaron Miles going to back-to-back Final Fours in 02-03, a two-time All-Big 12 pick in 04 and 05, the KU all-time assist leader, He's got to be ahead of Josh Jackson in terms of total merit, total legacy in what you did at KU wearing the number 11. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wait, I thought Aaron Miles, all-time assist leader. How is he not even higher on this list? That's because this next guy is number two. Number two. Otto Schnellbacher. The nickname he went by, the double threat from Sublet. Great nickname, first of all, but even better player. Over 1,000 career points in 83 games, which that's over 12 points per game. Might not sound like a lot, but like go back and look at some four-year players at KU. When you played as a freshman or a sophomore, it's going to weigh those down. Like Devontae Graham for his career was around 12, 13 points per game. So 12 points per game for a four-year career for Otto Schnellbacher, very good. Here's the kicker as well, because he was a four-time first-team all-conference selection. That's right, Otto Schnellbacher. Let me repeat that. Four-time first-team all-conference selection. But here's the kicker. Otto Schnellbacher also played football. And I get it. This is a list of KU men's basketball players, but that has to like count for something, right? He was KU's first football All-American ever in 1947. I mean, just a phenomenal two-sport athlete. He was a two-time pro bowler in professional football afterwards. But even if you take that away, just on the basketball merits alone, Four-time first-team all-conference. That gets him to number two on the list. The double threat from Sublet. Number one. But the top guy on the list, this impromptu top 10 KU men's basketball players to wear number 11, Jock Vaughn. I mean, could you go any other way with this? Two-time consensus All-American. Big 8 player of the year. He was also all Big 12 one year because they made the transition from Big 8 to Big 12. He's on some of the most memorable Kansas basketball teams. Some of the best Kansas basketball teams of all time. Jock Vaughn, number one. He is in the argument for 
greatest point guards in KU basketball history. Now, maybe that argument gets washed away when you have guys lately like Frank Mason win player of the year or Devontae Graham or Sharon Collins. But Jacques Vaughn is in that discussion. And Jacques Vaughn, one of the best players in KU basketball history, at the very least, he's the best to wear the number 11. All right, Brandon McAnderson is going to join us coming up in about five minutes from right now. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Twenty minutes till the top of the hour on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. Joining me now on a Friday, Brandon McAnderson. About two months out from the start of the KU football season, I think even less than that at this point. That's exciting. Uh, Lance Leipold was just ranked number nine in terms of coaches in the entire country by Pro Football Focus. Um, and BMAC now joins us on the phone. I, I think most people already loved the hire to begin with, but. I'm just kind of wondering now when you look at all these coaching rankings that have been coming out, and this is the highest of them all, if even Jayhawk fans like aren't high enough on this dude and how much that KU might have just kind of lucked into an amazing hire. Really, they really did. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's just, it's not a program that's been known for its incredible luck. <laughs> so it's nice to see, um, it's nice to see you know, something um, as a fan, just something small like this work out in our favor that someone evaluates this coach as, as one of the elite people to do this job in the country. And the Athletic released uh, a piece as well today that is kind of detailing the biggest overachievers and underachievers in college football right now. Um, when you look at KU, where their recruiting rankings have been compared to where they finished, they've been on the 10 biggest underachieving lists uh they're a minus 47 there and you look at what buffalo did with lance leipold they were a plus 74 now on one hand you could say that this means it's good because you're bringing in actually good recruits at least less miles was and it gets even better now because you have lance leipold who has been a guy who has basically that has been his his biggest pro for him it is that he overachieves uh, what is it about a coaching staff that and you saw this with a guy like Mark Mangino that can allow you to overachieve so much and consistently as a coaching staff. Well, I think that overachieving mark is a really big deal because what it does is it, it's telling you that this guy develops who's ever there. So who's ever in the building, he's making a player. And, and that has to make you optimistic just because if you're a – you know, Kansas football fan who follows closely, almost all the narratives have been centered around recruiting. And who's going to bring in this guy, that guy, this guy? Well, can't do much better than my father did recruiting. Hey, Beatty did well in recruiting. So there has to be more to it than that. I think that when you see him on an overachiever list based on the recruit ranking, that is the kind of positive that you want to see because you know that he built that through what he was doing. Um, in terms of making guys just better players. We're talking with Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back and sideline analyst for the Jayhawk Radio Network here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. It does obviously kind of turn into a honeymoon season anytime you have a first-year coach um, when you're at a point where Kansas is where you're still trying to build things up. And then you just obviously add on to the fact that Leipold doesn't join until after spring ball and it's tough to take too much of what happens this season 
as a learning tool for what the program is going to look like under Lance Leipold. So how should we properly evaluate this season uh, for KU since wins and losses likely won't be a part of that? Well, I think that's kind of the evaluation that I've been hinting at you know, for years now. I think what, what this fan base wants is a competitive team first. Um, you know, you don't, I don't think this is a fan base you have to tell to be patient because I mean, we've had no choice. Um, but at the same time, I think that what most people that I talk to want to see from the program is competency. And that's a pretty low first-year bar, but I think that's like beyond the first-year bar. We just want to see a team um, that competes at a high level, doesn't make a lot of big, huge mistakes, um, has a chance to win four or five games a year. I think that's how you evaluate success because, you know, this is going to be a long process. It's, uh, it's going to be a process of stringing together uh, strong recruiting classes, strong developmental summers, and just continuing to grind away. This is a staff that can do that, and, and that's where the expectations are, competency, competitiveness. Is that something where, you know, with, with Mark Mangino, was there like a, a notable turn in when things went from, I guess, step one to then step two being competitive to then step three starting to see some of the wins come? Yeah, so I think our step one was a bigger leap than people realize, and that's because we had Bill Whittemore, and that's because Bill Whittemore played quarterback. <laughs> so sometimes when you have a quarterback, you can skip a step. And I, that's what happened in 2003 um, where he where he was the guy coming into the season. That was my first year with the program. You know, they were coming off the season where they won two games. Uh, and, and it was a struggle for them. They didn't look like they had made any significant progress. So if you remember at the end of that year, Bill had some strong games. Um, and he kind of carried that into the next season. And then you come out and you're 5-2 and two after your first seven games. And it's not because your defense is playing well. Um, I was on scout team that year. We had one of the worst defenses in the country. Um, we did what we wanted on scout team. <laughs> so on Saturday, people did whatever they wanted. That was the first step. The second step was to take you know, Bill graduated, so it kind of left a, a hole at that quarterback position in terms of having a competitive person there. But what the step two was was just how tough we were. So because we had spent the whole season playing 12 competitive games, and they may have got blown out some, and I can't remember exactly every contest, but it was 12 competitive games. They got a chance to see what it was like in, in and out, you know, week to week, how tough the conference was, how tough the competition was the level of competing that you need to be at, that's what you get when you make a bowl, when you go to a bowl game and you win six games, you get a taste of what it's going to take. And I think that next year you could see, you could see kind of the roots of that with guys like Nick Reed becoming like a real player. Uh, you know, uh, Dave McMillan, who was, uh, he ended up being first team on conference at defensive end. So it started to build from there is that, oh, okay, so this is what it takes. Well, the first big step was having a quarterback. The second big step was all that defensive, all that competitiveness, all that attention to detail, that transferred into our defense. And we went from a team that was an offensive team to a defensive team in 2004. And then in 2005, our offense got a little bit better to match it and so on and so forth all the way through that process. But it really started with having a quarterback that let us skip some steps and then, two, being in that, being in those situations. We talk about, you know, winning and losing. There's no way to practice winning and losing except winning. I mean, you have to win. You have to know what these situations are like. You have to know what these experiences are like. 
And that's what Bill gave our whole program an opportunity to do. And that carried on to the next year and all the way through to the infield. Finding that quarterback has obviously been a big chore for KU over the last decade or so, although they've had, you know, spurts of it, little games here or there from whether it was Michael Cummings or uh, going on to Carter Stanley when he was paired uh, a couple years ago with Brent Deerman. There have been some flashes, but there hasn't been the sustained success there. So is that maybe something that you look for out of this first year with Lance Leipold? Can you identify a quarterback or do you have to kind of start a step before that this time around for KU just because of how troublesome the offensive line was a season ago? Well, I would say that that quarterback is the quarterback conundrum never goes away. You know, until you have a guy that's the biggest hole on your team just because, and, and it always, it shouldn't be because that's, you know, it's just like any other position. Um, but through the media, through the fan base, that's the guy they want. They want that guy to be a guy because it makes things a little bit easier. So that's always on the list. That's something you always want to develop. Right now, I think they just want to get talent in that room, and I think they have it. You know, they have some young players that can play. Now it's a matter of, okay, what is this guy going to be when he's 20? You know, you could watch Janet Daniels, and he does some things that your jaw hits the floor. And then if you think about him being 17 years old, you know, up until October of last year, doing some of those things, this guy is going to be you know, on in this program in five years, maybe 22 years old. That, that guy is going to have an opportunity to really, really grow and there is no denying his talent. And he also has the stuff. You know, he's a, he's a guy that people rally behind. He's a guy that, that's a motivator and has a great attitude. So I think he's still a guy that will be in the mix no matter what happens, uh, just because of talent level. Uh, but there's other people in that room, too. You got, you know, Conrad Holly, young people. You got Bean that's a transfer in. You got Miles Kendrick, who's as good a leader as there is on, in this whole program. And, and leadership comes from all over, and it can come from a backup, it can come from a starter, it can come from anywhere. I think he'll still play a role as a leader as well. Well, and I, I guess kind of part of what I was asking was how much can you evaluate with the quarterbacks if the offensive line struggles so mightily? Because as, as tough as the quarterback position was a season ago statistically for KU, it's hard for me to look at that and say we got a proper evaluation of Jalen Daniels. We got a proper evaluation of Miles Kendrick just because we know that they had so many struggles. So you look at this year. You bring in a couple transfers, you bring in some new recruits, you bring in some guys who maybe come back for uh, an extra senior season or just gaining another year in the program. To me, that seems like the biggest step that this team could make because it would help you unlock that ability to evaluate the quarterback. If the offensive line plays better, then you'll know what you have at that quarterback position. Am I wrong there? You are not wrong. I guess I just have a different perspective on it. It's because I think that our O-line issue was more about the collective than the players themselves. I actually think that the offensive line group is not one that lacks talent. I don't think that that was the case. I think that there were a lot of issues with communication. Like, if you would watch these guys, some of these simple, you know, inside, outside run stuff, you know, someone like me who you know, who sleeps and breathes this game, I can see what the problems are. Sometimes it's more about what they're doing, where they're working to. Their heads aren't even in the right place. So even if they would have, even if they, you know, would have been the best players in the world, they couldn't have made the blocks because some of their technique was off. I don't think it's a group that lacks talent. I just don't. I think it's a group that has talent but needs infrastructure, needs coaching, 
you know, just like any other position in college, you can have a talented group and not have any success. You know, and that's really what we saw last year. You saw three true freshmen, you know, in Jones, Cable D, and uh, Adams Reed were good good players, contributing players. Malik Clark is a guy that's had some really good moments at guard. Um, Chris Hughes is a guy that's had some really good moments at guard. Adagio Lopetti played like five positions. Uh, a guy like Mike uh, Nowitzki that came here from Buffalo is one of the highest-rated cities in the country. This is not a group that lacks talent. It was just a group that just they couldn't coalesce. They couldn't come together. You're talking about a group that collectively depends on each other a lot, and I don't know what kind of continuity um, they were afforded, you know, given the circumstances of COVID, you know, guys in that lineup every week, you know, guys being unavailable suddenly. There was a lot that went into to the struggle of that group, and I don't think talent was one of them. So it sounds like if, if I were to give you a – you know, what position group do you think could be most improved this next year? It sounds like you'd be pretty high on the offensive line. Absolutely. And I didn't even get to bring up a guy like Brunard, who, you know, I don't know what he'll factor to be as a starter, backup, whatever. We don't know any of those questions. But what we do know is that he's a winner. And he's been, in a, win- he's been a winner his whole career. And he's come from winning programs. And you can't tell me getting a guy like that doesn't make a difference. You know, being at Notre Dame, being at Niage, being a grinder, you know, being the son of a, a Hall of Famer. He's someone that just knows the game. He's someone that knows what it takes. He's someone that's been on teams that have had national success. So he's going to be an asset. I think it's going to be an improved group because they have talent. Um, I think they'll have depth uh, with some of these guys getting this extra year. Lee Clark, who are six-year players, tutoring guys that are 18, 19. It's about 23, 24-year-olds tutoring 18 and 19-year-olds. The best-case scenario. You know, even if those guys don't end up being you know, your starters, having veterans, having experienced guys is going to help that group. And I think collectively they'll have about eight, seven to eight to nine really good players that can contribute. We're talking with Brandon McAnderson for a few more minutes here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. NBA Finals, game two last night. The Phoenix Suns win again, so now they're up 2-0, halfway to, I guess, fulfilling the full circle of Suns in four uh, but Giannis last night, just an incredible game, just didn't get a ton of help around him. It, it almost feels like to me that, you know, in the NBA, not winning a title is such like a a plague on these players when people talk about them that, oh, but he hasn't won a title or he can't go this far, that far. But every so often it feels like we get these kind of valiant performances where players almost gain more for not winning the title um, I think Kevin Durant might have had that a little bit this year in how well he played in the second round, even though they lost. Is that kind of what we're getting with Giannis right now in the finals? Yeah, I think a lot of that is just silliness. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And it's something that was, you know, brought about by like the Skip Bayless era of just ridiculous, yeah. laughable, you know, TV debate shows where you're talking about stuff like clutch gene, like it's a real thing. You know, it's just something this guy <laughs> made up while he was on the toilet. So now it's something that people talk about all the time. I don't think it matters. I think someone like Giannis proved that he is a he is a unique player. He is an elite player. You know, people have dogged him because his coach won't put him on Kevin Durant. But you've seen in this series, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, these you know one-on-one assassins, they do not want Giannis in the switch because there's nothing's going to happen. He's going to be in front of them. So now they're staying away from that. Giannis defended the rim like a true center. This guy's knee was facing the wrong direction a week ago. <laughs> this guy is, is hitting fadeaways in the post, feeding guys, three-point shooters. I think he's been tremendous. And I don't think that this series is over 
I think the Suns, the Suns, for one, don't have a ton of depth just because they've had to deal with so many injuries at the back of their rotation. You know, they're playing seven guys, and we don't know what's up with Corey Craig, so it could be, you know, even less. I think that the Bucks, the problem with the Bucks is that Middleton and Holiday function like role players, meaning that they just play better at home. Um, and I think that they'll be able to help him at home. There were so many, like, both of these games have been unique outliers. One being that the Suns shot the lights off in three. The first game being that they were so many more free throw attempts, so many more free throw makes. I think that the, excuse me, the series has been pretty even when Giannis is available. I think they said he's plus four when he's on the court and minus 27 and only 21 minutes on the bench. That's something they got to fix, and it's got to start with Holiday and Middleton making shots. I think this will be a long series. Do you think that either one of these teams will make it back to the finals with their current construction of their roster? It's hard to say because I think the Suns are legitimate. There's no question about that. They won 51 games um, you know, in a shortened season. They were strong all season. The only even piece of weakness that they had was that having to deal with Anthony Davis. And so that's still going to be there. And like LeBron and Anthony Davis will still be around. So that's the one team that you think, I don't know. But, you know, the Nuggets, so it's hard to say. But I don't think it's, there's anything fluky about it because they're so versatile. You know, they can, they can score from the mid-range. They can score from three. They can play pick and roll. You know, they can go to eight and close touches. They're, they're role players. They're role wing players. They're multidimensional. You know, guys like Crowder is a good defender, hard-nosed player, uh, but can make open shots. Uh, Mikael Bridges showed last game something we didn't even think he was capable of, like hitting mid-range shots driving off the spot up. So they're a team that I don't think has reached their ceiling yet. Um, so I, I think that they'll be around. Now, I, if they make the finals, they're not, so it's just hard to do. Yeah, I think both teams will be around no matter what. Yeah, I just I feel like we're watching a breakout party for like DeAndre Ayton. And, I mean, Devin Booker we already knew was a, a star. But with DeAndre Ayton, we knew he was good. But I, I think – it wouldn't surprise me if this is similar to when the Spurs won the title a few years ago against the Heat. Kawhi Leonard wins finals MVP, um, and it was kind of a breakout like, oh, wow, this guy's really good, and all of a sudden the next year he's like a top 5-10 to 10 player in the league. Like That would not surprise me at all at this juncture with DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, he's made huge leaps, and he's also the center position is in the NBA has become like the running back position in football is the way I've kind of seen it, is that we don't know what they need from that position until you see. So you have your unique unicorns, you know, guys like Jokic, guys like Embiid, but then you get, you like unveil new prototypes. And that's what Aiton is. And Aiton did not become this until right now. So this was not something that he had showed signs of during the season. He showed some signs, you know, early in his career, but he's a young player. But this year he has made a consistent lead, a reliable double-double player who you cannot play small people on, who you can't run off the court with small, with a small lineup. So what he is is just a, a freak athlete that can run rim to rim, you know, that can stick with smaller guys on the perimeter, that can really make him pay on offense on the boards and the post. So he's like a new type of prototype. The guy that I think it's exciting for is, is our guy, Yudoka. Uh, I think it's an exciting thing for him. Now, he is not as fluid as Aiden, but he's also someone that is a freak athlete that can rim run and can really jump. And I wonder what, uh, you know, if he'll ever get the opportunity to show it, you know, being behind Gobert. But I think it's unveiled a lot of potential for somebody like Azubuki that maybe at some point he could be an Aiton-type player. 
He is Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, part of the Jayhawk Radio Network now. BMAC, thank you for the time, and have a good weekend. No, you do the same, man. All right, Brandon McAnderson joining us as he does every Friday here on RCST. Kendall McKee going to join us at the top of the 4 o'clock hour next. Welcome back, 4 o'clock hour here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson here. It is MLB Draft Weekend. That just kind of sneaks up on you every time of the year because it's in the middle of the season. Um, this year they're doing it on the weekend before the All-Star Game, which I actually like. There's less going on, so why not just put it now? Um, I'm happy about that, but what do the Royals do? They're picking seventh in the draft. Let's find out. Kendall McKee of JustBaseball.com. Just Baseball covers pretty much everything baseball-related, college, prospects, MLB, betting, you name it. Kendall, first things first. Um, a lot of people in the area, I think, would be a, pretty ecstatic if a guy like Kumar Rocker, uh, who, beyond having one of the best names in the draft, has been one of the best pitchers for the last couple of years at Vanderbilt. If he slides to number seven for the Royals, I think a lot of people would be excited about that. What is kind of the scouting report on Kumar Rocker? He's been an exciting arm. Um, you know, that, that Vanderbilt system has been crazy. I'm actually in uh nashville right now just down the street from vanderbilt um maybe i can uh maybe i can get a meeting with kubar no i'm just kidding but um we are looking forward to seeing kumar where he lands um i think he's got great history he's got obviously coming from a uh a legacy um, of his dad being on in the major leagues as well um and he definitely has great possibility to fall at seven but here's a curveball for you i'm not sure you guys should take him at seven yeah, I, I've seen some other mock drafts that have uh, like Brady House going to him at seven or even Jordan Lawler sliding down to number seven. So uh, I think it kind of just depends on, on what's on the board, so to speak. But I, I guess who do you think would be the perfect fit for the Royals at pick number seven? So um, let me just preface this by saying I love Bobby Witt Jr. Um, I know that as a Royal show, I'm sure you guys always talk about Bobby. Um, I love Bobby Wood Jr. He comes from the same uh, area of Texas that I come from. Um, and as a, as a Rangers fan, I, I was hoping that he was going to fall there. But in the Royal system, I think you've got to take best available here. And if Lawler falls to the seven, you've got to take him. I think um, when we see that, that Bobby Witt is becoming more like a Trevor Story mock or, uh, or somewhere in that realm, I think you could potentially – there is a way that potentially you could move him to third base. And if Lawler comes up and does, you guys can have them both in the, in the infield there. Um, one at the hot corner, either interchangeable. I think, I think Lawler at seven would be an absolute steal. I'm not sure he falls to seven, but one through eight here are really good players. Like this is a, this is a draft that we're not seeing, you know, Torkelson or, or uh, Rushman, like, heads and heads and shoulders better than everybody else. I think you're seeing eight guys potentially here that could all be fantastic players. And you've basically just got um, teams in front of you that are probably going to do a financial move and do some below slot picks to try to save some money, which means even some of these, maybe one through five guys are going to fall to you at seven. Um, I think you're going to have the pick of the lot. And the good thing for the, for the Royals here is I think the hard decisions are going to be made for you in picks one through six. I think you're going to have best case scenario and one player will fall to you at seven where you just, you're going to know the pick at whoever, uh, whoever the Diamondbacks take at six, you're going to probably just know who you're going to take at seven. 
Uh, as far as some of the top pitching prospects in this draft, obviously we've heard Rocker and, and Jack Leiter for uh, so long in this thing, but obviously it's a deep class as well. How, how would you compare some of the top pitching prospects in this year's draft to a guy that the Royals took in the top five a year ago in Asa Lacey? Well, I personally love Asa Lacey. When you have Lacey there, you have Lynch there, you have Bubich and, and, and Singer, it's just you're building a really solid system in the future. And then Bobby Witt Jr. coming up for you guys is just the icing on the cake. But in terms of like this year, I think um, Kumar could be a really big fit for you guys. Uh, Rocker, because he's a totally different style than what you have. Like you guys have a lot of uh, like, like finesse guys and really just guys that are um, just real like uh, focused on in terms of, uh, delivery and things, and Kumar is just a guy that's going to go up there and throw it as hard as he can. Uh, but he's an electric arm, and he had a little bit of a of a slip this year. I mean, there was talks a couple of years ago where Kumar was going to go number one overall, and uh, when we were watching him in high school, it was just like this guy was for sure going to go number one overall. We weren't even sure if he was going to end up going to Vanderbilt, and so when he did, um, it was just you just thought he was going to be number one, and then he slid a little bit this year because. There's just some uh, some stuff in the in the later parts of this season that we just saw a little bit of uh, lack of control, some stuff like that. But this guy is electric. I think he would be incredible for you guys there at seven. Um, and then I guess a deep pitcher that I think is really really interesting that I'm not sure the Royals are going to end up getting, um, but some a, a guy that I guess is kind of an interesting name, like longer down is. We love two-way players right now with Shohei Otani and, and McKay, but I think there's a guy that's coming up here that potentially could be a, uh, a two-way player. Braden Montgomery, I think he, he has the potential to be um, in the 66 range, so maybe you guys can pull him in a second. We're talking with Kendall McKee of Just Baseball here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, I, I already know that if the Royals do end up nabbing a pitcher high, uh, not that Royals fans won't be happy about it, but there's definitely going to be joking going around from some of the fan base with oh boy here's another pitcher for Cal Eldred the Royals pitching coach to kind of ruin um do you still have high hopes for guys like Daniel Lynch and Jackson Kowar Chris Bubich all those guys who have kind of struggled in the majors even Brady Singer to a lesser extent yeah I do have high hopes for them I mean you guys are in a rebuilding season even though that Early on this season, I thought the Royals were just set to win the Central there. Uh, I thought they had a good chance for that, especially just coming out of the gate super hot. Um, but I think the pitching, you guys, like, these guys are still pretty young. I mean, look at the absolute just youth you have in your system. I think there's a lot of upside here. I think you can see how these pitchers are kind of trying to figure it out as they go, which a lot of times you see – uh, a lot of time the average fan doesn't see this because a lot of these kind of things get ironed out in the, in the uh, late stages of the minor leagues. But I think the Royals have been given an opportunity to get these guys major league experience through their growth process, which I think will exponentially help in the, in the long run. And especially when you have more depth coming behind, I thought they brought Lynch up a little early. I thought he wasn't exactly ready. I'm glad they've let um, Lacey some figure out some stuff there in the minors. I know he's got a pretty significant walk uh, ratio right now. Um, he struggled early on, but we, the Royals pitching system will be stacked for the next five to 10 years. As, as far as the MLB draft as a whole, um, 
outside of the Royals, just from a general perspective, how do you kind of sort out the top guys in the draft? I know you mentioned there's eight that have kind of separated themselves among the best, but how would you kind of sort the very top guys in the draft and, and who are the best players? Well, I'll just go ahead with my top eight would be uh, Meyer, Lazier, Lawler, Watson, Rocker, then Job, then Davis, and then House. So um, the reason why I'm, I'm thinking Davis there, I think he's an incredible hitter, um, but I just don't think that catchers can really – vault a franchise like that as much as they used to and we see a power hitting catcher being really important nowadays but i think just i would put him at seven because i think an arm can exponentially improve and arms are so expensive in terms of the trade market so even if you're able to uh you know if you had to deal rocker or job or somebody like that in the future i think you could get more from him than you could davis but one through eight is just so and we've got four shortstops in there. Like, I know the age of the shortstop was, uh, was you know, five, six years ago where we were just having, I think Correa was the first one on the scene, and then it was like Turner, Story, and you were just seeing all these shortstops just pop out of nowhere. And now we have shortstops all over the game that are incredible. And uh, you have everybody from Tatis, Turner, um, just all over the board, there's incredible shortstops. And now you see this crop of, of four shortstops coming up. And I think as a Royals fan, if you end up drafting a shortstop here, I think you should still be excited because there's so many things that can happen in development. Uh, I mean, look at the Rays, for instance. I know um, our owner talked about this on a podcast the other day, but the Rays had you know three to four shortstops coming up, and now we've got Brujan playing some outfield. You know, they've got uh, Franco playing all over the diamond. And then um, Wells is getting some shortstop time as well. So I think if you guys draft somebody like Lawler, if he does fall to seven, you should be absolutely ecstatic because um, him next to Witt is just going to be so fun to watch. What about some possible sleepers that, you know, maybe go later in the first round or even if it is from, I guess, a Royals perspective uh, that could maybe sneak in to the second round for the Royals? Well, I, I mentioned the, uh, the the dual pitching and hitting option uh, down at like 66. I think that's potentially a little bit deeper than you than you're probably wanting to go. Um, he could potentially sneak to the third, I think, and Braden Montgomery. But I think there's some really interesting guys towards the bottom, and I think the later half of the first round, a lot of teams will be trying to save some money. So um, I think you could potentially see guys like uh, Colson McMurray and. Um, and then Benny Montgomery as well. Like both guys named Montgomery. Uh, Benny Montgomery is really outstanding coming out of Pennsylvania. He's just a, a power hitting guy. Um, a lot of comps have just been crazy for him. So I'm not even going to try to comp him, but he's a guy that's winning, you know, home run derbies and things. So it's a power hitting guy out of Pennsylvania. It's going to be really fun to watch. He's a quick guy as well. So Benny Montgomery is a guy that's a high schooler and it's going to be really fun to watch. He's at 15. So I'm not sure he gets to the second round, but that Bubba Chandler could also fall that far. Um, I've, I'm hearing that he's like probably going to go to the Yankees as well. Um, but, Colson Montgomery could be another good one as well. It's a third baseman, um, another high school hitter uh, out of Indiana. He's an extreme athlete, um, could have gone in, into some basketball uh, futures as well, but thought baseball would be better for him. Uh, I like him going potentially into the second round, and if you guys could steal him in the second round, it's another solid infielder that you're going to get um, with some potential power and a nice frame. 
He is Kendall McKee from Just Baseball, joining us here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. Kendall, thank you so much for the time. Love it, man. You guys have a great day. All right, that's Kendall McKee from JustBaseball.com, joining us here on RCST, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, again, the MLB Draft this Sunday night. I think it bleeds into Monday and Tuesday. So uh, we'll have some reactions over what the Royals do with David Lesky of Inside the Crown coming up on Monday's show. Coming up in a little here, we're going to talk with John Kirby, a little KU football action with John at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. We'll be joined by Joshua Briscoe of Sports Radio 810, almost entirely sports, as well as plenty of other sites, SI Now and uh, Times Ours on The Athletic. We'll talk some Chiefs with Joshua. More to come right here on RCST. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Welcome back in. I'm Derek Johnson, joined now by John Kirby of Rivals and Jayhawk Slant. KU football getting just closer. We can start to count down the days to when uh, training begins and then when we have our first game against South Dakota for KU, which, again, you'll be able to hear right here on KLWN. Uh, big news this week, though, KU landing Cornell Wheeler, a linebacker who was at Michigan, a former four-star recruit, coming into a position seemingly of need for KU. John, thank you for joining us today. Uh, what kind of player is, is KU getting in Cornell Wheeler? Yeah, Derek, you know, he is a probably what they call the true middle linebacker, which, you know, I used to joke, and I've even talked with other coaches in the Big 12 about this, that's kind of a lost art in the Big 12 over recent years because of all the spread offenses that you see and, you know, just the scheme and the style that everybody runs. You, you saw that middle linebacker kind of leave the field because you, you needed an extra defensive back out there. But now if you've noticed, some of the passing numbers have come back down, and you're starting to see teams run the ball more effectively, get some quarterback run game mixed in there. So now you're starting to see some of these middle linebackers come back. So that's kind of what he is. Um, you know, uh, interesting story because – Simpson, the, the linebackers coach at KU, who just came from Buffalo, had a really good relationship with him during the recruiting process. Um, you know, obviously the kid stayed home and went to Michigan, so that was going to be a tough hit for Buffalo. But he, he built a real good relationship with him. And then Rich Miller, who's a linebacker, who just transferred into KU, is from Detroit, and he knew him. So there were some connections there that, that Kansas was able to capitalize on. And I really think once he went into the portal, I just think that he had a good – I don't want to say a good idea that he knew ahead of time. I just think he knew that Kansas would be a good fit for him, and everything worked out. Yeah, it seems like uh, it could be a guy who – I don't know. I, I'm assuming he's going to be immediately eligible um, with the new transfer rules that he's going to maybe hit the ground running, so to speak. And, and I'm sure with, you know, Leipold coming after spring practices, you don't have a preconceived notion of who's going to be in that position. So seemingly a big gift for them. But uh, they've gotten other guys, as you mentioned, with like Rich Miller and so forth. Just between what they've gotten with Wheeler, Jeremy Webb, Jason Bean, all the Buffalo guys, uh, it seems like KU's going in pretty heavily on the transfer market here over the last couple months. How much do you think that helps them for this season specifically? Well, Derek, I think that was part of their plan, okay? And, and, and they're, they're smart. They know what's going on. Leipold's a detailed guy. He's got good people on his staff. They've got good people in compliance. So they're, they know the rules, and they know how things are going to play out. 
my assumption is is that you know they're they're going to be able to get creative with some of the scholarship numbers to where they still have a decent amount to give next year but all those transfers are able to come in right now and play and i think one of the biggest things that when you look at this everybody says well are, are all of these players from buffalo going to start at KU well i don't know that they are Okay, I don't know that, you know, maybe half of them might start. I think they'll all contribute, absolutely. But the biggest thing those kids can do is they know the culture that was built at Buffalo, and they know the system in the program that was in place at Buffalo, and they can come into Kansas and really help build that culture faster. And I'm not talking about, like, take over the locker room or, you know, try to be the big man on campus or anything. I'm talking about coming in and, 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 you know, being a resource or, hey, hey, you know, this is how coach always likes us to lift or this is, you know, this is what was expected of us in the linebacker room or, or whatever situation there is. I think that'll help with the transition a little quicker because the things that I've heard about the guys that came in from Buffalo, not only are they good players, they're really good kids, okay? And I think there was probably opportunity to bring other players as well, but I think they stuck with players who are going to be able to help them and build that culture and that transition. Which of all those guys coming in do you think have the best chance to start? I'm sure there's multiple of them, but uh, which of those players do you look at as, as playing the biggest role right away? Yeah, I think uh, I think Nowitzki, probably the center, would be would, would be the guy that you look at right away. Um, you know, he was what uh, Pro Football Focus had him as the third or fourth best center in the country in terms of ratings coming back this year. So, I mean, right there, you know, he he's a quality guy. And you know, hey, listen, talk about transfers. You know, uh, Grunhard, Colin Grunhard, transferred in from, from Notre Dame, and there, there's a center right there who's going to compete for the starting job. So, right there alone at the center position you've probably upgraded it right there just with two transfers um, another interesting guy is Ford he's somebody that doesn't get talked about a lot he he came out of Buffalo this spring as the starting right tackle as a true freshman I, I excuse me a red shirt freshman with the COVID year but he's got four years of eligibility left so you know there's another guy he's going to come in and he's going to fight for playing time right away at right tackle so you know that there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to compete for those jobs I don't know how many will be starters but they're all going to be in the mix yeah I think you brought up a good point there too with the COVID year I don't I don't even know what to refer to some of these kids as like I think of the basketball team you have Jalen Wilson who took a redshirt year he had the COVID year is he a third year freshman is he a sophomore I have no idea what to call some of the um but anyway is it worrisome at all that you know, we've talked about the scholarship numbers for so long with this team. Is, is that affected at all by this transfer stuff, or is that not something we should worry about here? No, because you're capped. I mean, you know, so you, you get X amount a year, and then you get X amount overall. You get 85 overall, and you've got a hard cap of 25. So they'll use all 25 of those. Okay. Now the question will be how many will count forward and things like that, which, you know, it, it's always tough to figure out because they don't ever come out and give you the exact explanation, which they don't have to on, you know, where every player is and who was given a scholarship and who's counting off the next class. But I think soon here, you're going to see them, Derek, they're going to start bumping against that 85 here pretty soon because one thing that Les Miles and his staff did for the last two years, they recruited nothing but high school football players. And that gives these guys the ability to go out if they need to and bring in some transfers or look in the portal for a few guys here this year. You know, 
Derek, this is going to be an interesting fall, okay, because this is something that we've never really seen in college football. What you had, uh, Lincoln Riley took over for Stoops late in the summer. Pat Fitzgerald took over Northwestern late in the summer when the head coach at Northwestern passed away. So I think Leipold is one of the three latest coaches ever hired at the Power Five level in the history of college football, okay? So he's never seen these kids play. Him, his offensive coordinator, his defensive coordinator, uh, Borland, Colonel Nicky, they haven't seen their kids play. So they're going to have to go through fall camp probably partway through the season before they can sit here and look at their recruiting board and start saying, okay, this is how many linemen we need to target. This is how many linebackers we need to target. Because I don't think they're going to know that idea until they know who their players are. We're talking with John Kirby of Jayhawk Slant and Rivals here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. And I, I don't know uh, specifically how much Scott Aligo had in the hand of Michigan State bringing on all these different transfers. I, th- I think they were up in the high teens with how many they brought on. And now Kansas bringing over Scott Aligo, uh, just given how much the transfer portal has become synonymous with college athletics here over the last year or two. Um, from just a roster management perspective, is that the type of move that other teams and that Kansas is trying to make here with a guy like Aligo? Well, he's a great fit for Kansas. I mean, uh, I believe he's from Tonganoxy. Um, you know, he's a KU guy. His family's in the area. You know, he did a good Michigan State. I had heard about Scott long before his name ever came up with Kansas. You know, they got uh, Greg Schwarzkopf from Army, who did – he coordinated – all of the recruiting for Monk and Ed Army. So there's a couple good hires right there. Uh, Grant Murray is going to be the director of player personnel who, who was, he held that same position at Buffalo. So I, I think, you know, then obviously you got Rob Ionello, who's the general manager. I think you've got a pretty strong group of guys right there that understand the recruiting game, the portal game, and, and, and will map out a strategy and a plan of what they need to do going forward. I know you guys on your site released your uh, summer running back preview, and I don't want to give away really anything or too much there, but uh, obviously no more Puka Williams for KU, who was absolutely electric. But it seems like overall it it just seems to be another solid unit this year and and that they've kind of been there in a lot of the past years that it's going to look that way again here in 2021. Yeah, you know, in in the preview that, that, that I did, you know, the big thing that I touched on, Derek, is I think there's some talent there at the running back spot, but I think there's a lot of guys who specialize in one thing. And what I mean by that is somebody like Highshaw, you know, he's a power guy. Pessa Kickson came in as more of a power guy. Now, he's got a little bit of athleticism. I saw him play basketball in high school. Uh, you know, he was committed to Michigan for a while. And, and you know, he, he can do some things for a bigger back. than Velton, Velton Gardner's more of a speed guy. So when you look up and down, you know, the running backs, you don't see a lot of guys that you can say, okay, this guy can catch the ball. This guy can run with power if he has to. He can run with speed. I mean, honestly, the best skill set right now from top to bottom for a running back that I see could be Devin Neal. So, I mean, it'll be interesting. That's going to be one of my most favorite positions to watch this fall camp is the competition that goes on there and who moves to the top. Because, you know, when those guys were at Buffalo, they had some pretty good running backs. I mean, that, that a couple guys are going to get a shot in the NFL. So, um, they, they, like, they like one back sets. He is John Kirby, Jayhawk Slant. 
rivals. John, thank you so much for the time, and I uh, look forward to talking to you throughout the football season. All right, Derek. Take care. All right, that was John Kirby, Jayhawks Slant Rivals, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to be joined by Joshua Briscoe. We're going to talk a little Chiefs, a little uh, NBA Finals with Joshua. That on the other side. Welcome back to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson here, now joined by Joshua Briscoe of Almost Entirely Sports and Chiefs Post Game on Sports Radio 810. Also, SI Now. SI Chiefs, Arrowhead report there. Uh, Time's ours on The Athletic, so as we've gone over with Josh before, plenty of uh, bylines that you can find Josh at. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Josh. We're three weeks about, I think, from two weeks from this Wednesday till Chiefs training camp begins. Uh, Do you think there are any roster moves still waiting to be had for this team? I know Melvin Ingram, Justin Houston have been popular names to kind of beef up the defensive line. Are you expecting anything to actually happen, though, or is that just kind of fodder? Yeah, I mean, I think they're probably going to see something on the edge, not because I think the Chris Jones stuff is, like, not not founded. I think he's really, like, switching positions, it seems. Um, but I, I think Melvin Ingram still makes a ton of sense. Uh, Nate Taylor from The Athletic and, and of the aforementioned Times Ours podcast, he recorded a new episode yesterday, and, and Ingram came up, and I saw he has a mailbag out now where he's, he's brought up Melvin Ingram a handful of times. I do think that there's still something there of Melvin Ingram not really wanting to uh, certainly do mini camps and OTAs, and maybe he's going to sign partway through training camp because he's been in the league for a long time. He's a professional. He's also had, you know, some injury issues. So, like, I think that's all relatively reasonable. I certainly don't think the door is closed there. Um, I also, at this point, don't think that there's, like, a, um, I don't know, some earth-shattering thing's going to come over the top. I, I think the roster is 95% set at this point with there being a chance that you see a Melvin Ingram, maybe a Justin Houston, but that on that front, it's been even more quiet than on the Ingram front. So I, I do think there's a chance that one of the two of them ends up uh, being a chief or maybe it's another veteran kind of post-training camp cutdowns. Do you think the Justin Houston one is a pipe dream because of how it ended last time? I don't think it's a pipe dream because of that, but I do think that's important context. And this might be a little bit inside, so I hope I'm not, you know, giving away too much exclusive information. But every time I've I've been around people talking about Justin Houston who were covering the team in the locker room every day whenever he was still here or or specifically talking to them about it, 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 it does always sound like there was some legit kind of bad blood on the way out. Um, or if not, or, you know, hurt feelings, some frustrations, maybe. I mean, it was well documented that, you know, uh, my my favorite Chiefs <laughs> player over the last decade, not named Patrick Mahomes, Marcus Peters, uh, had his had his issues with the Chiefs defensive coaching staff. And so I think there was some tension throughout the, the defensive coaching staff and some of the defensive stars there. Um, with that in mind, though, it's a different – it's a different defensive crew. So I don't know if any of that rose up to having a problem with like Andy Reid. I really don't know if that's the, the case or not. And if not, I, I could see Houston coming in for a visit and talking to Spags and, and the new assistants and everything. And, and actually, you know, seeing it as, as not the same issues that he could have been potentially frustrated with last time he was around. So I, I don't think it's a, a pipe dream, but I do think it's a part of the equation. If we were to go through all the different worries you have for the team, where would the pass rush rank among all those things? Is it all the way up at number one? <sighs> That's a really good question. Just defensively or on both sides of the ball? 
Well, both sides of the ball, but um, clearly we're not I, taking quarterback there, right? We're not taking offensive right. line. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I think it's number two. Um, I think pass catchers are number three for me, and that's mostly greed because I basically I want them to have a better wide receiver three because Tyreek Hill is your I mean really Kelsey is your one Hill is your two right, um, but. Uh, the, the the main concern I have is still in corners. We'll talk about that in a minute. We can, but um, the the pass rushers, rushers I think are second after that, and, and here's why: because you, you have Frank Clark, who's got the biggest cap hit on the team this year. Obviously, the gun charges and everything. We'll see if that ends up being anything. I'm not convinced that it will be, but like his contract was tough before anything happened this off season. He he underproduced last year. Um, completely independent of anything from the offseason. Like, that, he, he might have the biggest impact in terms of, like, variety of outcomes that he could have. And, and so if he's great, the pass rush won't be a problem. I'm a little bit nervous about the Chris Jones thing because it's moving, in my mind, the second-best interior pass rusher to a different position. Like, in, in all football, not on the team. Uh, and, and so kicking him outside makes me – I'm a bit nervous. It feels like you're playing Matt. You go, well, he's a, he's a 96 interior, but if he's a 97 on the edge and, you know, the edge is more important, whatever. I, I worry a little bit about that being, about the TCA being a little too clever for their own good there. But right now they don't have another defensive end that I feel really good about. Uh, and then on the interior without Chris Jones, you get Jaron Reed, you know, year two of Pershawn Wharton, maybe Colin Saunders gets some more reps and, I don't mention Derek Naughty there just because he's more of a run stuffer than a, a, a pass rusher. So I, I don't think it's like apocalyptic or anything. I don't I don't think we're going to look back and go, man, the Chiefs pass rush cost them a cost them the AFC West. But that's because they have Patrick Mahomes, not because I really do have a ton of faith in pass rush. Yeah, the defense just kind of feels like an enigma to me. It's you know mm-hmm. you've been basically around league average the last two years. Before that you were near the bottom of the barrel and you could convince me that, well, maybe they will be a little better. You know, Juan Thornhill has a breakout season last year. He was just kind of coming off the injury. All of a sudden you have an elite safety core and the move of Chris Jones, all of a sudden you're getting uh, a good pass rush again. And maybe guys like uh, Willie Gay or Nick Bolton step up to kind of fortify the linebacker core. Maybe you'd have just enough with Steve Spagnuolo figuring out the cornerback situation and maybe they're better. But then there's also the flip side of that, which is like, oh, well, what happens if the pass rush still isn't there? What happens if the linebackers still continue to struggle? And what happens if your other worry, like you mentioned, the corners don't end up surmounting too much? Yeah, because I, I think that a lot of conversations, I also brought this up a minute times ours. I don't know why I'm double plugging the, the new episode of Times Ours. I'm able to work with podcast. But um, I. I, I I pulled out a phrase that I'm not sure I've used before, but we'll continue using at this point because I think it, I think it helps remind us of a, a dangerous thing that we can do in in terms of looking at, at really anything in sports, especially. But but really, the Chiefs defense is a great example of this. I think we oftentimes go into analysis and we assume the ceiling. So you assume that it's going to go as well as possible. You assume best case scenarios. We don't we don't do that anywhere more so than we do it for the NFL draft. Your 12th pick in the draft or whatever, you assume the ceiling. <laughs> you do not assume, you never assume the floor. And really, we should be assuming the middle, but we, we don't really do that very well. Um, and so you assume that every, you know, again, first round pick is going to be great, even though half of, half of first round picks are like total busts, right? With the Chiefs defense, 
I don't want to assume the ceiling. I want to try to assume something somewhere in the middle. So, like, I think that the pass rush ends up being okay with all of that in mind, right? And like, that's kind of what it was last year. That the Chiefs also they I don't have the stats in front of me, but there was something like between five and ten in blitz percentage, which also puts them almost exactly in that same spot in terms of pressure percentage. Well, that's not really winning. You're not really winning your matchups there, right? That's not actually like a huge advantage. You're just getting there about as often as your blitzes would indicate that you should. That's probably going to be pretty similar this year. Can they get there with four more often? I don't know. Um, I really like Willie Gay. I, I think that his his ceiling is incredibly high. But I also didn't want to – I don't want to assume that he's going to hit his ceiling because if I would have done that last year, I would have assumed a much more impactful rookie campaign. And, and you know, if he still has problems – processing NFL speed in year two, if his eyes aren't right in year two, then it would be silly to assume that he's going to turn into, you know, the best linebacker in football, even though he has the physical tools to do that. So that's a tricky line to walk that I've been thinking about lately in terms of, you know, if you assume the best case scenario, you're going to be disappointed more times than not. Talking with Joshua Briscoe here on RCST, bigger chance for a breakout season with the Chiefs this year. Willie Gay, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, and I mean, that's a little tougher to say it's a breakout, but you know what I mean, or McCole mm-hmm. Hardman. Mm-hmm. I would have had anything that McCole Hardman was going to be on your list there. I love it, uh, because he's, he's become such an interesting conversation piece. I think, I think I'm going to say Willie Gay from that list, because I think he's going to have the most opportunity um, again, I'm doing the thing where I'm assuming the best case scenario for him, but I, I think he's going to have more chances to do that where by the end of the year, there's a really good chance that he has started every game and has played a big part in that defense and is most really good doing it specifically in, in those sub packages, you know, staying on the field with Anthony Hitchens with, with, um, you know, Damian Wilson now out of the picture. So I think I lean towards really gay on the other two for Hardman. I just, I, I do think that he's, We've we've come around here on McCole Hardman where he was super hyped last year and then had a pretty disappointing second season. And I actually think right now, like if, if I if, if they were if players were stocks, I would buy stock in McCole Hardman right now because I think it's a pretty good buy low opportunity on him. But I I don't think he can be a top ten receiver, twenty five receiver in football. And I don't think he's going to get that kind of usage if I had to guess. And frankly, I don't think he's going to hit exactly that high level. I think he'll probably have a pretty decent role, though, that he can fulfill relatively well this year. And for Clyde, I mean, you made the point of it's hard, it's hard to say breakout. Similar, like, hey. If, if you got a little bit burned because you drafted him higher than you should have last year, this is probably the year to actually do it because you hope he gets involved in the passing game. I just also think that, and at least I hope, that he's not going to have enough carries to look like, you know, the the most uh, dominant stat racking up running back in football because the Chiefs shouldn't be using him that way. Yeah, to me, the biggest improvement that you can get from Clyde is just obviously more in the passing game, which hopefully that ends up happening. Uh, The McCole Hardman stuff, that brings me to a little segment that I want to do with you here. We're joined by Joshua Briscoe right now. It is a simple segment. It is called Good Idea, Bad Idea. So you tell me if it's a good idea or bad idea. Very simple. Uh, Nikhil Harry is on the trade block, and Brett Veach loves reclamation projects, loves those former Mm -hmm. first-round picks. 
the reported thing from Jeremy Fowler said you could get him for a conditional sixth. Good idea or bad idea for the Chiefs to trade a conditional sixth for Nikhil Harry? It's such a simple game, and I want to break the rules so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna, Medium I idea. Kind of, I want to say it's kind of a neutral idea. Yeah. I think it's probably a bad idea. Um, in part because even with his with him being traded, I think the Chiefs would end up taking like a two two and a half million dollar cap hit or something. And and the reason that um, the reason that I, I lean towards bad idea is just because I think at this point he's probably a little bit redundant um, to what the Chiefs currently have. Like if you say, all right, the Chiefs have Nikhila Harry, which like for six round pick is fine. It's first round talent for six round pick, you're right. That's a Brett Veach, you know, uh, go to in his playbook. First of all, but if they if they trade for Nikhil Harry for a, a sixth round pick, my assumption is that he is clearly behind. I'm, I'm going to keep using Travis Kelsey as essentially a, a slot receiver here. He he's clearly behind Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. I think he's pretty clearly behind McCole Hardman, who's going into his third year in this offense. Um, I think he's probably behind Cornell Powell, who the Chiefs have at a better value and for a longer period of time. Um, I, he's clearly behind Demarcus Robinson. Maybe he's competing with Byron Pringle for like the sixth pass catcher spot. I, I would, I would honestly be more interested in like bringing in Josh Gordon on a veteran minimum because I at least think, again, with the dangers of assuming that he's going to hit his ceiling, like I think that his ceiling is higher, and and that maybe he would be able to do something four plays a game where you go, oh, hey, Josh Gordon actually like made the defense pay for not respecting him because he hasn't played football in like a decade or whatever. Um, and I just don't know. I don't know that Nikhil Harry does that or has that. It's, it's the reason that I wanted the Chiefs to draft the receiver in the first couple of rounds this year. And I didn't really, I, I kind of like Cornell Powell, but uh, it's the reason I wanted them to draft the receiver in the first couple of rounds and not, you know, in the fourth or whatever. Cause I don't really think the Chiefs need more receivers that are, competing with Demarcus Robinson. Uh, they, they need a, 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 no, they need, I would like for them to have a true number two receiver that can, can line up in the Sammy Watkins kind of role and just do that for the next five or six years. But I, it does sound like they think that, that Powell can do that. And I don't really think that Nikhil Harry is likely to fill that role. Okay. What about this one? The Chiefs should give Tyron Matthew a three-year $45 million extension. Good or bad idea? Uh, good idea. I, I think that for the most part there, it depends on, you know, how the actual structure goes. And the last years of deals are mostly kind of funny money. But a, a three-year 45 for um, – even if that's legitimately what it ends up being, you talk about probably it's a, it's a three – if it's a three-year extension, it's, pro- it's probably really a two-year extension that definitely keeps him in Kansas City through three seasons. Um, my hunch is that it's going to be closer to – 50, if not even a, a smidge above that. But I do think that they're going to get a deal done. And I would, I would sign up for a three-year, $45 million, um, extension right now, even if that really was predominantly, like, almost all guaranteed. I think it's pretty worthwhile. Okay, how about this one? The Phoenix Suns should immediately build a statue with Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, and Suns and Four Guy. A hundred percent. Great idea. If they do that, I will get that. I would get that ta- that that statue tattooed somewhere <laughs> on my body um, because, yeah, I think that that is the big four right now. It's those it's those three. And so if they sweep, can you like listen? I know people have gotten to the point with Sons and Four Guy um, where it's like he's doing like autograph signings and everything, and people are like, all right, Sons and Four Guy, okay. And I I need to 
I'm glad that we've brought this up because I think it would be hilarious to have a Suns and Four guys sign a merch thing for people to make fun of me for. Um, it's just a ridiculous, a ridiculous. Imagine explaining that to your kids <laughs> in 25 years or whatever, right? Um, but like, who signed? Was that, was that Devin Booker? No, no, no. It's a fan that beat the ever living bleep out of a Nuggets fan in Denver, and then the Suns wanted a sweep. Um, I, I, but I love all of them, and uh, I know people are tired of Suns and Four guy, but he's getting a 15 minutes, and if he, if the Suns sweep the finals, he gets 15 more minutes. Those are the rules. I love that. That's a that's a great idea. Um, okay, this is the last one I have for you. This is a historic good or bad idea. Suns taking uh, Aiton number one over Luca and Trey Young. So, oh boy, I love this. Okay, so I'm a Suns fan. I don't know if everybody knows that, whatever. You clearly do. Um, I was so, I was frustrated at the time. I liked Luca, and maybe I was just regurgitating what smarter people were saying. I do that all the time. I really liked Luca. At the time, the Suns head coach was Igor Kokoskov, who was Luca's coach at one point in Europe. I wanted them to take Luca. And DeAndre Ayton, through his first two years in the league, really, um, I, I would say maybe even until the bubble to some extent, and then really this year, he, he just played, he played smaller than he is. Um, there was a timidity to his game that was deeply frustrating to me because he is this, like, he, he's built like a superhero, but played, you know, just like a dude for the most part. Um, he, his, his progression, partially with Monty Williams, who had the, kind of that, that now semi-viral clip from the game last night that is so good if you haven't seen it, um, and then playing with Chris Paul, and also apparently Chris Paul and Devin Booker, I've just been on DeAndre Ayton's bleep for, like, this entire year. There were, like, there were games early in the season where it looked like Ayton played great, and they were coming to the post-game press conference and saying, he, he's got to be better than that. He's got to be more aggressive. So anyway... All of that to say, in these playoffs, everyone watching the Suns for the first time has got to be thinking that this is who DeAndre Ayton has always been. It has not. His development has been unbelievably fun to watch. And at this point, man, I'm, here's, this is, a, this is a, uh, a, a big thing for me to declare, but the Suns taking DeAndre Ayton number one over Luka and Trey Young as of right now, man, that's a good idea. It, 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 is Luka going to have the better career from this point forward as an individual player? Yeah, sure. I, I, I would still definitely say that. But the Suns are, right now, knock on wood, probably going to win the NBA Finals. And and it's going to be with DeAndre Ayton playing a massive role in it. I don't know if they're here with Luka. They would not have ended up with Chris Paul with Luka. I would love to see Luka and Devin Booker play together. But, I, I mean, the Suns are here now. Like, it's a, very, it's a, little, bit reduction, or a little bit revisionist, I guess. But I will have no complaints about that, that draft pick because the Suns, I think, are going to win the Finals. And I have no idea when Luka will. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree. He's just kind of the perfect fit for everything you need. And I, I thought yeah. it was funny going back to the draft and, and not even the Aiton versus Luka and Trey Young stuff, but the big man stuff of I remember a lot of people were arguing that, hey, if you're going to take a big man, you should take Jaron Jackson because he's mm. the future of the big man position with his versatility and ability to shoot threes. And now it's just like, well, I, I think DeAndre Aiton figured out how to be okay with the future of the big man position. And Jaron Jackson's fine, but that's what he is. He's fine. And DeAndre Ayton's an absolute superstar. Um, so yeah. yeah, and that's just that, that was very far from being the, the assumption, you know, literally like three months ago. I mean, that that would have that would have sounded that would have sounded insane. And and I look man, I mean I, I like I like quarterbacks and receivers. I like three point shooters and I, I like shot creators. Like that's just sort of 
I'm I'm a I'm a simple man in that way. I, I like the <laughs> I like flashy, and I do think that the the future of the big man position I think is a legitimate like that was a legitimate uh, gripe against the Aiton pick at the time, which is why you'd probably go Luca and and Jared Jackson Jr. is a really good player, but the fact that the Suns have built their roster this way I think has has justified the pick, if not you know proven it objectively correct. And again, I've at this point, it's really hard for me to complain about much of anything because we're, we're watching the Suns two wins away from their first championship ever and their first finals since after since before either of us were born. I'm pretty sure you... How old are you? What, what year were you born? Uh, 1995. 90, I, I thought you were, you're about a year younger than me. Yeah, 93, Suns Bulls. We were not here for that one. And now they're here in large part because of DeAndre Ayton. So I got no gripe. Yep. Pretty crazy. Well, we'll see if uh, Sons and Four, the prophecy, comes to its fullest <laughs> at the end of these finals. He's Joshua Briscoe. Josh, thank you so much for the time. I accidentally just called you Josh there. I, I hope you don't Michael Malone me at the end of this, but yes. thanks for your time. <laughs> My mom calls me Joshua. There's no Patrick. <laughs> absolutely not allowed. Um, and Actually, please just do call me Josh because almost only my mom calls me Joshua at this point, and I don't need that dynamic keeping into our radio interview. <laughs> thanks again, Josh. Thanks, Eric. All right, that's going to do it for Friday edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Thanks to all our guests. We had a good amount of them today between Josh, Brandon McAnderson, who joined us, Kendall McKee to talk a little Royals and MLB draft, and John Kirby to talk a little KU football and recruiting with us. If you missed any of it, check it out on our Best of RCST podcast brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can find it Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast, klwn.com. So check it out. If you get a chance, have a good weekend.